Material on this program is intended for general information only and should not be taken as specific investment, tax, or legal advice. None of the information contained in this broadcast is intended by the host to be a solicitation for the purchase or sale of any security. Endorsed Local Provider is an endorsement of customer service only and does not reflect quality of investment decisions and is not connected to investment returns. Further information is available by contacting Richard Young Associates, a registered investment advisor, securities sold through Independent Financial Group, LLC, member of FINRA and SIPC. Welcome to Money MD, where the money doctors are in the house and giving out prescriptions for better financial health and making smart decisions with your money. We give common sense solutions to your complex problems. I'm Steve Marbert, a certified financial planner and an investment advisor with 19 years experience in providing financial planning and investment advice. And I'm John Travis. I'm Dave Ramsey's endorsed local provider. I also have an MBA in finance and have over 20 years in helping corporations and individuals with planning. We're excited to have you listening to us today on our weekly radio show. We are right here every Saturday, like today, from 9 to 10 a.m. You can also go to our website, moneymd.net. Uh, we have a link in the top right-hand corner that you can stream us uh, at any point. Um, you, know, you can certainly record it, but you can also uh, catch us on 1230 a.m. as well. Yeah, and you can download the TuneIn Radio app on your smartphone. That's my favorite way of listening, and uh, you can listen to us while you're Jogging, working around the house, um, cleaning up, you know, getting ready for spring, summer, fall, whatever, whatever the season. Yeah, it's you know, all it it's all, good. all the time. We're always here. We really are. All right. Um, well, the, you know, John, we have a great show lineup today. Um, you have a prediction, don't you? I, well, not exactly <laughs> a prediction, but, you know, this is a great article, and uh, it's out of moneynews.com, and it, the title simple. Could this secular bear bull market, could the bull market last another 15 years? Wow. That's a long time. That's a long time. Well, you know, there's a great chart that goes with this article that is very compelling. I mean, when you start looking at secular bull markets and the rolling 10-year returns, you want to tune in for this. This is going to be a great topic. Yeah, it is. And um, followed up by a, a maybe not such a happy topic, taxes on the way up again. Yeah, this is all coming out of Obama's budget, right? It is. This is his budget. It's not, it's it's not law, in. but you can certainly see the writing on the wall. Um, depending on who's in the White House, who controls Congress, um, they're looking at making changes, and most of them aren't happy changes. Yeah, and these are ones he pushed last year in his budget deal. So, you know, it's these aren't going away. Eventually, some of these are going to come to pass. Yeah, stick around. There's a real big one in there that we'll talk about. It's the first time I've heard about it. So we'll uh, uh, you know get into that. Stay tuned for that one. It's going to be in the second half of the show. And then we're also we're going to follow up with a, an article about why do we save so little. When we look back at the greatest generation, Growing up, they they were better savers than us, typically. Yeah, um, it, it's really pathetic, the level of savings we're currently at. And, you know, we had a little spike back in the uh, uh, recession there mm-hmm. where people were saving more. But, you know, compared to the good old days and the greatest generation following World War II, we're, we're just, it's just pathetic. You, yeah. get, you have to tune in for this. You know, there's, there's a reason behind this, and we need to figure out what it is. Yeah, that's right. We'll dive into that one. That's a good one. All right, so we're going to start off here, though, with the financial fact of the week. Yeah, the source of this is the American Association of Individual Investors. And um, back in 2009, that's, a, that's four, uh, five years um, plus now, 
Uh, the S&P 500 bottomed at 677. That was the um, what the market index was, uh, and that was on March the 9th, 2009. Yep. And that, that was the end of the 17-month bear market in which the stock index fell 57%. Everybody was really <clears throat> bullish after that, weren't they? Uh, weren't they all just yeah. like, yeah, it's, t- yeah, it's yeah. time to get in, baby. Exactly. I'm, I'm all in. <laughs> <laughs> there were no signs that said, you know, now's the time to buy, But in, which is evident by the fact that a weekly survey uh, of stock investors indicated that 70% of them were bearish as of um, 3.409. So that's the highest bearish uh, measurement ever recorded by the study. And it just goes to show that you're right. On, on In March of 2009, <laughs> nobody was saying, hey, this is the end of it's time to buy. But those investors that stayed invested, that did some rebalancing, that added some money, they, it's turned out pretty well for them. That's right. It just goes to show, I mean, you know, man, the, the masses really can't call it. I mean, they get it exactly wrong. Yeah, if you typically go the opposite direction from the masses, you'll do okay. That's right. And not to say that you can time it, no. but I was just saying you can't follow the masses because... They're just wrong. I mean, your emotions will tell you the wrong thing almost every time. And I bet you so. those 70%, I bet you most of them were sitting in cash. It doesn't say what it is, but oh, yeah. if you're bearish and you've been through a tough market like that, you're, you're probably not hanging in the market. And a lot of those people are now, just now, getting back in the market. Yeah. It's up, what, 200% or something? Half to record, record percent. Yeah, unbelievable. That's a good one. All right, and that leads up to our first topic here, though, and that is, um, like I said, an article out of moneynews.com. And, um, you know, it says the secular bull market has years left. The question is, could this bull market last another 15 years? Well, I guess we're in the fifth year, roughly, right now. Right now, we've been about five years into this bull market. And, um, you know, Ryan Dietrich, who is a senior technical strategist at Schaefer's Investment Research, he has this uncanny ability to kind of connect the dots in the market and that seldom makes sense. And he believes this secular bull market is just now getting started. Interesting. I like that sentiment, though. I mean, yeah, you know, I do, too. Five it's years into it, he thinks it's just getting started. He says bull market's five years old, and with all the new money highs on the horizon, um, he still hears people talking about, you know, this is a secular bear market. Uh, you know, I, I don't know if anybody that can say that with a straight face, but, but they do. And, you know, and he mentions that here. I mean, not to mention the the... The bulls are still getting crushed on social media and the web, you know, social websites for being bullish. Um, but to him, you know, that's a very longer term bullish to him. Mm-hmm. He, he thinks this is a really long term bull market. He's in the camp that 2009 was it. You know, that was the low. He says he didn't say that at the time but you know since 2009 um he's been saying it and he's still saying it in january um the world was seemingly coming to an end again you know this year mm-hmm. when emerging markets were going through this new kind of bear market um that many of us thought that it was at the time and uh you know he noted on cnbc that you know things were actually looking pretty good back then then weren't weren't headed for a bull market at all a bear market at all yeah that's right and, and you mentioned earlier steve about uh, a chart and obviously we can't um show you the chart on radio no um, but it's pretty impressive it, it is and it just you know suggests that this bull market could have another decade or more of gains coming it looks back at history and looks at some trends and so forth uh no certainly it's not going to be a straight line i mean we know that and and for some of those years uh they'll be down but the bigger picture um is this secular bull market should see gains for many years to come according to this gentleman and you know the current 10 year annualized return for the dow 
is just 5% return. And if you look back at this chart, um, this is just an average return going all the way back to 1910. So we're talking about over 100 years' worth of data. And, in fact, the, the bull market um, doesn't end until closer to 15- to 20-year runs and an annualized return closer to 15%. So there's some things that we're going to talk about in this article that's driving his optimism associated with it. But when you just look at the charts, it is very uh, it is interesting. It is very, very compelling. Yeah, I mean, you, you clearly see that, you know, until the 10-year annualized return gets close to 15%, you don't typically see us enter this bear market phase of a secular bear market. By the way, a se- the word secular bear market, secular bull market, that just means it's kind of the long-term trend, mm-hmm. the overall trend of the market. It's not to say you can't still have a correction or even a bear market inside of a secular bull market, sure, sure. but it's just saying the overall trend, which usually lasts 15 to 20 years, according to this chart, um, is, is up. Mm-hmm. And uh, so that's really what they mean here. You know, although it's it's cautious for the near term, he says. Um, well, Schwab's chief investment strategist thinks U.S. stocks are in the continuing secular bull market as well, and that that's one of the best. Um, that it will be one of the best in our lifetimes. Um, Liz Saunders, who's a senior VP and chief investment strategist for Schwab, told attendees at a keynote address at the Inside EFT conference that um, some overly positive sentiment and problems were emerging and in, in, were coming about in emerging markets where earnings growth has been slowed and could mean a correction of 10%, but that won't spell the end of the bull market that started all the way back in March of 2009. And, um, you know, bull markets, they often have nasty corrections, she points out. And the stock market could face um, one that's bigger than we've seen the last two and a half years because, in fact, we haven't even had a correction <laughs> yeah. Yeah. in the past two and a half years. Yeah, I would say we're due on that. Yeah, on a 10% correction. So she says, you know, you definitely can expect one of those. But she also believes the bull market will continue for years to come. Um, and she points to a number of positive economic factors that she thinks bode well for the U.S. economy and the stock market going forward. Yeah, and, you know, federal spending has really been the only drag on the economy, um, she said. And, you know, but by mid-year, she doesn't think it's going to be much of a factor as uh, government continues to deleverage. The federal deficit has been shrinking. We've talked about that recently, and the deficit is down to 3.3% of GDP. Uh, short-term surplus is in sight thanks to spending cuts plus a better economy and tax increases. So uh, I think, you know, we see the federal government shrinking, which needs to shrink, and that, that does put a little bit of pressure short-term on the economy. But there's some more positives out there. Yeah, and the shrinking part of it is kind of over is what she's pointing out here. So she thinks that's a that's a positive, really, for the economy. Also, she says the private sector has already picked up steam, plus U.S. businesses are sitting on an extraordinary large hoard of cash, mm-hmm. a level we haven't seen since World War II. And, uh, you know, this has been both a reason why we've had a fairly anemic growth rate in the economy, but also represents a potential for a pent-up demand. Um, we know that the capital is there. They haven't um, had an- the animal spirits to put that to work mm-hmm. other than uh, stock buyback programs, she says. But, you know, the leading economic indicators for capital spending have now started to pick up. And, you know, she thinks it's going to be very positive going forward for, uh, for you know, capital spending yeah. for the private that sector. Will, that will definitely help. Yeah. So, all right. So we'll continue this when we come back from the break. But if you have questions, you can email us at info at moneymd.net. 
or you can give us a call at 706-739-0725. You're listening to Money MD with John and Steve. We'll be right back after these messages. Stay with us. Welcome back to Money MD, where the money doctors are in the house. I'm Steve Marbert, a certified financial planner, and I'm here with John Travis, who is Dave Ramsey's endorsed local provider. And we are continuing a discussion here before the break um, about an article out of moneynews.com. And, you know, it's about could this secular bull market last another 15 years? Yeah, um, we're, we're five years into it. And um, as you mentioned, secular just means kind of long-term trend. Right. Doesn't mean that there won't be down years, corrections, maybe even a, a bear market in there. But the long-term trend of being up is kind of what they're talking about here. That's right. Yeah, I mean, if you look at this chart that they have, which is really a pretty amazing chart, it's a 10-year rolling returns going back to 1910. And what it shows is there have been three major secular bull markets since 1910, and they've lasted anywhere from 15 years to 25 years. Mm -hmm. You know, so really long-term cycles, and we're only five years into this. So if we're really in one of these long-term secular bull markets, which – you know, there's nothing to say that it's going to repeat exactly the yeah. way those last I mean, no three one knows. It, it could turn down any time, right? But if we are in one of those, I mean, it gives it gives a lot of reason for hope mm-hmm. because, I mean, yeah, I mean, if it just repeats the shortest one, we got another ten years, pretty good markets. And, and there's some positive factors out there that are driving some of this optimism, right? There is, there is. But you know, one more thing I want to point out though is, and they point out in this article is that. Secular bull markets typically don't end until the 10-year rolling return gets closer to about 15%. And right now it's about 5%. Right now it's about 5%. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, for the 10-year return to get back to 15%, we'd have to have some pretty good markets, I think, for the next five years Mm -hmm. for that to happen. So, um, you know, it bodes really well um, for where we're at in the economy and in particular the stock market. And like you mentioned, there's some driving factors here. I mean, one of them we just pointed out is that federal spending uh, is is down to 3.3 percent of GDP. Um, The deficit is down to 3.3 percent of GDP, which is the lowest we've had in quite a while. So that that has helped in the contraction in government spending has kind of tapered off and, and played out so that. You know, that's not such a drag on the economy anymore. So that's a positive. And also, um, you know, the private sector's picked up. You know, the private sector has started to invest some of the hordes of cash that they've had sitting on the sidelines for a long, long time now. Yeah, I've seen stats of up to like a trillion dollars of cash. I mean, they've done a a remarkable job of managing through, you know, the the crisis, really. I mean, they've cut, they've been more efficient and they've cut where they had to, and they're sitting on a lot of cash. Yeah, and we're not really talking about the stock market cash here. We're talking no, about cash in companies, in yeah. companies that are going to go out and buy, you know, upgrade. They're going to expand. They're going to buy capital, capital goods. So that's a real positive for the market. You know, and another one here is, I mean, concerns about the profit margins are valid, but markets usually do pretty well for another year or two after they peak. And the long-term trend... Um, looks pretty positive for years to come with profit margins as well. And then, you know, another one he points out here um, is inflation won't be a worry in the near term because the the Fed has been injecting, um, even though they've been injecting money into the economy, it hasn't produced a whole lot of lending. And that could be a budding theme this year. If we start to see a pickup in the velocity of money, Saunders Mm -hmm. points out, 
Um, to put it another way, if the Fed has been pumping money, it's a tremendous amounts of money into the banking system and deposits are way up, but bank lending while growing is growing at a much slower pace. So, in fact, the spread between bank lending and deposits has never been this wide. So there's a lot of money out there. It's just not being deployed into the economy. Correct. Basically. Correct. And so, you know, there's a lot of room for that to improve. Mm-hmm. That's what she's pointing out here is that it's never been that wide, the, the spread between bank lending and deposits. It's never been that wide. So, you know, a little bit of pickup there can make a big difference to GDP growth. And then also household debt as a percentage of disposable income is also no longer a drag on the stock markets. Um, households deleveraging will continue, she says, but the pace has slowed and it's no longer a problem for the economy um, as households, you know, pull back. I'll have to get spending. Have to get some credit to Dave Ramsey on that with all his uh, FPU classes going on across the country. That's right. He's a big believer in no debt. So, um, and I think that's a big, yeah, it's a big positive. Gets for people the average, healthy and whole. Average family. That's exactly right. Absolutely. Another positive is uh, a manufacturing renaissance has started in the U.S. And you know, it won't be a powerful elixir that cures all problems because manufacturing is still only thirteen percent of the U.S. economy. But is at the beginning of a resurgence. The last two economic expansions were really more about paper wealth, Saunders says. For the first time since post-World War II history, uh, manufacturing has grown as a share of the U.S. economy for three years in a row. And she, you know, she noted that U.S. wages haven't r- risen much in the last 30 years, while labor costs are increasing in many emerging markets. And that's two factors among many that are prompting companies to actually consider moving operations back to the U.S. So that's that's a very positive. Manufacturing jobs typically pay well, they uh, do. typically steady, have good benefits. It's good for the American economy. It definitely is. We talked about the before here on the show, you know, how the U.S. is kind of in a, in a manufacturing and energy renaissance. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, we're really starting to see that pick up again in the U.S. And, and boy, I mean, just five years ago or 10 years ago, people thought we were in a continual decline in manufacturing. We were going to lose those jobs forever. They were never coming back. We kept hearing that in the, in the presidential campaign. Those jobs are never coming back. Well, now we're starting to see someone come back. Mm-hmm. So uh, that's that's a real positive. I really love that one. Also, you know, she points out that the U.S. is now the number one energy producer in the world. You know, the U.S. last year produced more crude oil than it imported. The energy boom improves U.S. competitiveness. It reduces um, political risk because the country is less beholden to the problematic regions of the world, such as the Middle East. You know, however, I mean, these changes drive macroeconomic advantages, but they don't necessarily help the stock of energy companies, and that faces some downward pressure on prices. Yeah, I think one thing that are buried in these last two, Steve, and we've talked about this, is just technology is so uh, improving so rapidly. I mean, not only in, in, in the energy and manufacturing, but also in medical, and um, it's fantastic. I mean, I've, I've talked to a doctor recently who thinks in, in 75 years they'll be able to tell you what diseases you'll have in the future, and in 100 years they'll be able to fix them all. Well, you know, that won't help on, us, but that's good for our no, grandkids. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it's just it just points out that how technology is changing our it lives is. every yeah. day. So it's very positive. It is. That's a real good positive, you know. And it, it is amazing how technology and we're leading the world in that. The U.S. really leads the world in technology. You're not going to be alive in a hundred years. Uh, you know, I'm going to work on it, but I'd be a pretty old dude by then. 
<laughs> no doubt. All right. Well, all, although the signs are positive for the U.S. stock market, I mean, one thing she isn't forecasting is some kind of great rotation by individual investors from fixed income into equities. You know, while last year did end up with a decent flow into equities out of bonds, she says, you know, that barely dents the trend of the last five years. So we don't think we're going to see this great rotation unless there's a route in the bond market, she said. We don't think we're going to see that kind of massive dumping of fixed income into in favor of equities. It might continue um, to look like it has. The potential for a great rotation is not among individual investors, but institutional investors, really, that may be kind of switching out of uh, into stocks. But, you know, I guess the bottom line here, John, is that the picture looks pretty good for stocks in the, in the U.S. economy kind of moving forward um, on the long-term trend. You know, short-term, yeah, there, there might be corrections. There might be bear markets. There will be. Yeah. Um, but long-term, if you believe in secular bull markets, kind of these long-term trends that go in cycles, we've had three of them since the uh, 2010, and they last a long time. And we could have another 10 or 15 years. Yeah, and I think the key is, as we talk about it, is getting the right risk profile to begin with. You know, make sure that you understand you know, some of the down years in your in your risk profile and uh, do some rebalancing and, you know, be diversified. Exactly. You always want to be diversified. All right. That leads up here to our question of the week. This question has to do with 401ks. Um, just joined a company, have no idea how to invest in my 401k plan. It has like 25 different options. What should I do? <laughs> Throw your hands up. You, know? yeah, you just put a little 2% in each of those 25. Uh, well, okay, five, four, four. 4% yeah. in each of those 25 options. Yeah, that's what people yeah. do. They just spread it all out. It is so confusing. We hear, we hear that very question confusing. very, very frequently. We um, we do help our clients typically with 401k allocations because um, you can't look at a fund or even the past performance and know where to put your money. No, um, no, in general, right. there are some decent options. They're called target date funds. Um, for someone who's not familiar with what to put it in, that, yeah, that's reasonable. If you're not sophisticated, you don't want to go to a effort, that's kind of a, a, a you know, no-brainer way to go. Mm-hmm. It's pretty good diversification. Yeah, it does. Generally, they do. I, I think they're a little too conservative, mm-hmm. you know, but having said that, it's not a bad choice. So look and see if, if your portfolio, your 401k has a target date retirement fund or life cycle fund, they're mm-hmm. sometimes called. You know, they have the, the retirement date on there like 2030 you know yeah. so you pick the one that's closer to your retirement date put all your money in there 100 mm-hmm. percent, and just forget about it yeah, and the closer it, you get it gets more conservative yeah right? glide path so as you get closer to retirement it'll be, become more conservative but yeah that's a good question though it is complicated so yeah i mean if um you know for folks that are our clients out there um we're happy to help you allocate those mm-hmm. so give us a call and we can uh, come up with an allocation that's a little more sophisticated and better than just the just the uh, default yeah. you right. know target date position all right that leads up to our break here but if you have questions you can email us at info at moneymd.net or give us a call at richard young associates at 706-739-0725 you're listening to money md with john and steve We'll be right back after these messages and Gina News. Stay with us. Welcome back to Money MD, where the money doctors are in the house. I'm Steve Marbert, a certified financial planner, and I'm here with John Travis, who is Dave Ramsey's endorsed local provider, and we are going to lead off our uh, second segment here with a new topic, and that is. Um, well, you know, it's it's coming out of Obama's budget proposal, but 
is a new one here we've never seen before, John. Mm-hmm. Required minimum distributions for Roth oh. IRAs. Tell me it's not so... Ugly, nasty. You know what I mean? Starting to change the rules. I tell you, yeah, take that one back, you know, and, and the the GQ public will never forgive Congress yeah. if they did that. Yeah, this is a big deal. President Obama's 2015 budget uh, included a number of proposed changes aimed at retirement. Um, six out of the seven provisions that we're going to talk about um, were in last year's budget, so... Uh, we're going to review those a little bit, but uh, if you're hoping that some or all of the proposals will actually become law, um, maybe not, um, which is good. Let's hope not, yeah. <laughs> you know, the the fact that all uh, of the major retirement account-related proposals from last year are repeated this year's budget should tell you something. None of them actually were enacted uh, in the budget process and became law, and you know they all require at least some level of congressional action to implement. So the uh, Vegas odds at this point are not too high. Fortunately, I'm getting much more implemented this year. But nevertheless, um, Steve, it's important to know that the key retirement account provisions included in the president's budget this year, um, they're out there for a reason. And, and, and I think um, it's, a, it's certainly an indication of where the administration wants to head. So 2014 elections are critical, obviously 2016 as well, because uh, depending on who's running the country, right. um, these things could get implemented. Well, you know, and once the idea has been broached, then it, it, it tends to get brought up again and again and again mm-hmm. until someday the right combination of people are in Washington and they implement it. So, you know, just, just you know, be aware. I mean, yeah, this, this first one on the list is the doozy here. Uh, it says harmonize Roth IRA RMD rules with other retirement accounts. This is this is ugly and mean, I think. Um, yeah, what he's saying here is, I mean, this is the only new one on the list from last year, and when people catch on to it, it's bound to make some major waves under the premise of simplifying the tax rules. That's kind of the guys mm-hmm. here. Yeah. Um, for retirement accounts, President Obama's 2015 budget calls for provision that would require Roth IRAs to follow the same RMD required minimum distribution rules as other retirement accounts. Yeah. You know, so in other words, what, you're 70 and a half? You got to start taking money out of a Roth? Well, you already paid tax on that money. They promised you when you did the conversion, when you put all the money in there, that you'd be able to keep it as long as you wanted for your lifetime. Yeah. That's, um, I've, I, you know, when someone does a Roth today, they say, you know, can this change? And it's like, well, of it course. certainly can. We, we don't know what the rules and regulations are going to be. But, Ross, um, this is a pretty big deal. Now, they're not saying it's going to be taxed. They're just saying you have to take it out. Not yet. Yes, not yet. That could be next. Yeah. I mean, they may say later on, oh, if you're over this income limit, then we're going to tax your Roth. Yeah. That, that's where it's going. I mean, eventually, you know, this is just one more move. Yeah. To, it's a baby to step towards that. Baby step toward toward taxing it for higher income people for for means testing the tax free uh, part of your uh, your Roth. Yeah, I mean, if this uh, RMD provision on the Roth were come to, were to come to pass, it would be a major game changer when it comes to retirement planning. I mean, the fact that Roth IRAs have no RMDs is one of the key reasons many people decide to contribute or even convert to Roth IRAs in the first place. So, uh, Steve, you know, Roth IRAs, if you don't have an RMD, you're not required to take any money out of it. Some people 
will get that or give that when they pass to, to their, their kids. to their kids. Yeah, and it can grow tax free over decades and decades and decades. It can be a huge benefit. Yeah, now your kids have to start taking it out. <laughs> sure, right? They can't keep it over their entire, or, or they can't pass it on to their kids. They have to take it over their lifetime. Over but their you lifetime, still, you can it can grow during your retirement. Piece so it's it. not like it's there in perpetuity, right? But the point is, you get to keep it a long time, and now they're saying, "Oh no, you're seven and a half. You got to start taking. You got to basically clean it out for the next over the next twenty years." Is is basically where they're going. Yeah, and if this proposal were to become law, conversions would make um, sense for far fewer people. And not only that, this proposal gives all those who haven't made Roth conversions over the years uh, because they quote don't trust the government to keep their word end quote more ammunition. So. Uh, this is a big deal. This is a game changer. Um, hopefully, we don't see this uh, actually, you know, enacted and become law. Because you're right, it's the first step to to some other ones. Here's some other things that are on the table in the budget: maximum uh, tax benefit for retirement account contributions. They're saying would be limited to um, to 28 percent, and as a result, certain uh, high income individuals would certainly be impacted. Uh, by this because they wouldn't receive their, their full tax deduction. Um, they, they give an example here, right? Of- yeah, this is another ugly proposal, you know, um, <laughs> nasty little proposal. The example is, I mean, if, you, if you, you're an individual with a half million dollars of taxable income and you defer $10,000 in your 401K, you know, you won't have to pay tax on that $10,000 right under the current rules. Without the salary deferral of that income, it would be taxed at 39.6%. Mm-hmm. So, you know, pretty big savings there. Um, however, if this proposal would have become effective, that $10,000 would effectively be taxed at 11.6% because it would be your 39.6% minus the 28%. Right, right. So the maximum tax benefit that a client could receive or a person would be limited to 28%, and that equates to an additional tax bill of more than $1,000. I mean, you know, to me, Obama is always trying to stick it to the top 1%. They're trying to, he's trying to kill the American dream, you know, of tax deferral and accumulating lots of money for, for you know, your for future benefits. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's just part of his, I hate to say it, socialist agenda. I hate to be so partisan. Yeah, but, you know, unfortunately... Well, I mean, they've already made tax changes that are impacting, and these are additional ones. Another one here on the list is a mandatory five-year rule for now non-spouse beneficiaries. And so here's the deal on this one, um, Steve, just kind of in summary a little bit, is today when someone passes away, um, a non-spouse beneficiary can take this over their entire lifetime, right? Right, right? So if someone inherits an IRA account at age 50, they can take that balance over the next 50 years. Typically, if the markets do well, the, the balances will grow and so forth. Uh, and you can limit the tax exposure over time. This rule is saying, nope, you can't do it over your lifetime. You have to take it in the next five years. So they're doing away with the stretch IRA. That's right, the stretch IRA. So if you do it in five years, let's say you have a $100,000 balance, you're going to have to take $20,000 a year, which will then be taxed at your, whatever rate you're in, right? Yeah, tax that's bracket. right. So this, this can... Um, this is not a happy one either. Um, no, it's it's another kind of mean proposal. You know, <laughs> it's always attacking people's ability to save lots of money and to to you know be successful and encouraging people to save money. You know, again, I, I kind of get back to it's it's kind of this underlying agenda of making people dependent on the government, mm-hmm. not dependent on themselves, not rewarding savings, not rewarding. You know, stretching things out, you know, in your in your life in terms of, mm-hmm. of your finances. And, and the next one on the list here is capping 
contributions and, and total amounts and, and IRAs. Um, yeah, we th- talked about this in last year's. Yeah, this cap would be determined by calculating a lump sum payment that would be required to produce a joint and 100% survivor annuity of $210,000. He's basically putting a dollar figure on it, right? If you get yeah. over this amount, then sorry. Well, right. At the present formula, at the present time, the formula would cap retirement accounts at three point two million dollars, which sounds like a ton of money. But you know, if you ended up with more than this in your retirement account at the end of the year, you'd be prohibited from contributing any new dollars to a retirement account in the following year, and that cap would increase for inflation. But I mean, this sets a real bad precedent. Again, eventually we would be back at where we were when we had the excess accumulation distribution tax. Mm-hmm. It was a 15% tax in 1996, up to 1996. If you had over $600,000 in an IRA mm-hmm. and you tried to take it out, they started taxing you at 15 extra percent on top of your ordinary income. Mm. You know, that's coming back. If you start letting these kind of things creep into the law, yeah. it's going to, you know, the definition of who's rich, well, I thought 1% is going to get lower and lower. Yeah, you bring a great point. I mean, $3.2 million is a lot of money, and most people don't save that much. Sure. But it opens the door to lowering that. What if it was... 600,000. That's going to impact a lot more people out there. That's right. I mean, everybody always looks at these proposals and they say, oh, it won't impact me because that's just the ultra wealthy. <clears throat> yeah, you know, you know, why not get those people, you know, charge them an extra. They can afford it. Well, unfortunately, that's where it always starts. And then it trickles down. And that's how we got to a 94% tax rate in the 1950s, you know, top marginal tax rate. I mean, it was mm-hmm. insane, yeah. right? Yeah. And, you know, and nobody, you couldn't make over, you know, a couple hundred thousand dollars a year because they just basically took it all. <laughs> and, uh, <clears throat> I mean, those days are going to come back again if you let this kind of yeah. kind of socialist punitive agenda come back into the... So vote. That's right. Vote, vote. <laughs> so anyway, there's some other ones that are here on the list. Those are the major ones, though. But just keep your eyes and ears out. Taxes, um, ever-changing game, and um, hopefully we'll uh, have some some good elections that will uh, realize that capitalism is what really drives America and what really works. That's exactly right. Okay, well, that leads up to our break here. But if you have questions, you can email us at info at moneymd.net. Or give us a call at Richard Young Associates during regular business hours at 706-739-0725. You're listening to Money MD with John and Steve. We'll be right back after this message. Welcome back to Money MD, where the money doctors are in the house. I'm Steve Marbert, a certified financial planner. I'm here with John Travis, who is Dave Ramsey's endorsed local provider. And we are, uh, well, starting off with the prescription. financial prescription of the week. Yes. Yeah, this, um, you know, Steve, we, we both do um, counseling for folks out in the community and in our churches. And we'll run across this situation periodically, um, unfortunately, more frequently than what we certainly like to. But see people in financial crisis, um, not able to pay their bills. Yeah. And basically what you have to do is stop all discretionary spending. Um, the things you have to focus on is pay for your home, your mortgage, your auto, if you have a payment. Um, obviously, you have transportation, utilities, and, and food. Um, all of those, you, you got to have a kind of, Dave Ramsey calls it a wall. you got to put a wall around your family. Give them some security and some protection. Right. All this other stuff that's out there, cell phones and TVs, and you it's gotta, just not worth it. And you got to get real. you got to change your lifestyle. You know, appliance breaks. No, you don't need a new appliance. You need a, a cheap used one. Mm-hmm. Okay? So you go to... 
I don't know, a garage sale. Yeah, I want to add. You go to, you know, Craigslist and you, you find something that's 50 bucks and you go buy a new washing machine. Yep. You know what I'm saying? I mean, people don't get real about that kind of stuff. And we see this time and again, you know, like I knew somebody, I counseled somebody who's in financial crisis and, you know, they had huge credit card debts and they're trying to figure out how to make ends meet. And then yet for like Thanksgiving, they like had Thanksgiving dinner catered in. Yeah. I mean, yeah, wrong answer. You know, you, you just got to get you got to get your head in the right place yeah. about how your lifestyle has to be. And then you got to be living like a grad student, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, eating beans and rice yeah. and, and you just got to be taking care of the things you, you got to take care of your food and shelter for your kids. And you have to get a plan. That's when, you know, the Dave Ramsey course, the financial peace university is a great process. It gives you a lot of information out there. Um, you know, getting into debt doesn't happen overnight and getting out of debt doesn't happen overnight. It takes no. time. And so, but uh, having a plan and, and initially just giving some security to your situation is the most important thing. That's exactly right. All right. That was a good one. And um, that leads up here to our final topic. And that is, you know, why do we save so little? It's uh, <laughs> an article here um, just talking about our pathetic savings rate that yeah. Americans have, you know, and I mean, once upon a time, we used to save a little bit of money. Yeah, you know, our parents and grandparents, Steve, saved probably more than we do um, today as you know, yeah, we look probably. back at history. Uh, most people uh, who have read up on the economy for any length of time, they've heard of something called the personal savings rate. Um, it's uh, a stat that the Commerce Department calculates. It's a ratio of personal savings to disposable personal income. And the January um, spending report released um, showed uh, March at about 4.3%. So that's um, that's historically, you know, pretty low. It's a little bit higher than it has been. But uh, as of, you know, January 2013, which is you know, a little bit over a year ago, households were saving just 2.3% of their disposable incomes. So this can be labeled as a short-term improvement, but it still pales in comparison to, to the way Americans used to save in the good old days. Yeah, I mean, it's still pathetic is the bottom line. It's just pathetic, <laughs> okay? Yeah. If you're in that category, just look in the mirror and say, I'm pathetic, because <laughs> you are. Um, you're you're you know, tough today, man. I am. I mean, you just got to get real. You got to start gotta saving some money. Mm-hmm. It's got to be a priority. It's got to be real money. You know, you're not going to have the big pension plan that your parents had. No, that's right. Wake up, smell the coffee. And the government as a plan? Uh-uh. Yeah. I mean, are you going to be able to rely on the government who has $17 trillion of debt? I mean, if, if you're a young person, by the time you get around to collecting Social Security, they're not even going to be crumbs left in the plate. Okay? <laughs> I mean, so get real. you got you got to do it yourself. So, you know, pull yourself up by your bootstraps and get get going. Yeah, the greatest generation, they had a culture of savings. It was reinforced by hard times and a call for personal sacrifice as the economy endured the Great Depression and uh, rationing during World War II. And the Commerce Department began measuring household savings in 1959. And as unbelievable as it may seem today, households saved 10% or more of their disposable incomes through nearly all of the 60s, wow. John. I mean, they did that for a decade or more. In May 1975, the personal savings rate reached a peak of 14.6%. That's where it should be. That's right. Always. And, yeah, we, we certainly profess that. Dave Ramsey talks about 15%. Um, That's right. But, you know, we don't see that. Unfortunately, from 1959 to the present, the average has been about a little shy of 7%, but the 21st century shows evidence of a significant decline. The savings rate fell into the 1% to 3% range um, and dropping to a record low of 0.4% 
0.8% in April 2005. Now, go back to 2005. Those were the roaring days of real estate, right? Yes, really. People were living large. They had real estate income coming in. They just didn't feel like that it was ever going to stop, so therefore they didn't save. And, you know, to some analysts, a declining personal savings rate signals a, a stronger economy. Well, usually. Yeah, it, it implies more spending, uh, and consumer spending has the biggest impact on GDP. But you can't have it all. Uh, more spending means less saving, and Americans are plagued by insufficient retirement reserves. So the, the trap people get caught in, Steve, I think, is that times are going good. They think it's always going to continue, and they don't set aside some for a rainy day. No, that's exactly right. They're also, I mean, people are, I think it also means people are counting more on the government to bail them out. Mm-hmm. You know, they're thinking, uh, you know, I mean, Social Security, Medicare, there's so many things the government's going to take care of me. And they just got to wake up and smell the coffee. That's not going to happen down the road. You know, it's just not going to – we're in a world where it's going to be diametrically different. They don't have the resources. I mean, they don't. The things they don't. are starting to change. We see it. Yeah, and so, you know, our credit, credit card's the problem. Well, we borrow greatly, but there are other factors in play. I mean, you may have heard about America's shrinking middle class. Well, that's no exaggeration. The most recent Census Bureau data shows the U.S. – Median household income uh, for 2012 was at $51,017 per year, <clears throat> okay, 51000 a year. By comparison, the median household income in 1989, when adjusted for inflation, works out to be 51681 Wow. So same income. And that's been, how many years is that? It's, that's like 20, mm-hmm. that's a long time, John. 25 years. 25 years. Yeah, so from 89 through 2012, annualized inflation was in the range of 2 to 4%. So that illustrates just how the slow but serious erosion of your purchasing power has taken place for the average household. I mean, it's, it's, it's getting pretty bad, you know? I mean, incomes have not grown. So if you aren't saving some of that, mm-hmm. you know, you're going to be in trouble. Yeah, and, you know, during that same time frame, you mentioned cost. The cost of college has gone up uh, dramatically. Healthcare costs increase uh, much above the inflation rate, probably 5 to 6%. Uh, obviously, real estate values fluctuated. Um, but the fact is, is people saved less and they borrowed more. And not simply on impulse, they wound up borrowing more to maintain a middle-class standard of living. And, and we, that is so true. I mean, in order to have the same lifestyle as you did 10 or 15 or 20 years ago, that's right. Um, you know, that income's not changing. You're having to use credit cards. Now, obviously, people ask the question, how could you possibly save 10% or 15% on that kind of income if you have a median income of $51,000 a year? Well, I mean, you just have to set your lifestyle to whatever the income you have. Mm-hmm. It has to be set lower than that. Yep. And so it doesn't matter how little your income is. You've got to find the lifestyle that's less than that so that you do, are able to save some money, so that you're able to, to get out of that lifestyle, so you're able to get into a better situation, have some, some savings so that you can weather the storm and not dig a deeper and deeper hole for yourself. I mean, real incomes aside, I mean, we're often lured into the unnecessary spending. You know, advertising can convince us that we're, we have unmet needs and desires and that we must respond to them by buying goods and services. You know, urges, emotions, living without a budget, they can all lead us to spend more than we really should, especially given how much money we will need to adequately retire. So Yeah, that brings know, up a good point. Yeah, don't get in that trap. Yeah, I mean, financial peace is by having solid financials, not by having stuff. 
I mean, stuff typically causes stress. And, you know, our parents and grandparents really knew how to pay themselves first. And while economic pressures certainly make it harder for many of us to do do that today, uh, it doesn't have it doesn't mean it should not be a high priority. Um, it, It might be useful to think about future money when you're thinking about making a discretionary purchase. So the question you should ask yourself is, you know, are those dollars you're spending at a mall or restaurant or vehicle today better off saved and invested for tomorrow? Right. That's right. Yeah, I'm just going to end with this one quick story. When me and Kathy first got married, you know, not to toot our own horn, but we just said, you know, we're going to save her income. She's going to work, and we're going to save that toward a house. We're never going to be dependent on two incomes. So we 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 lived off of my income, which was like twenty eight thousand dollars a year back then in 1986. Lived in a small apartment. But it was fun, you know, drove an old used car and old used truck and, you know, we got around and we just ate cheap and we saved her her income. She made like $16,000 a year mm-hmm. as a teacher. We saved every dime of that for five years. So mm-hmm. we were saving like 30, 40% wow. of our income. Yeah, that's fantastic. And I mean, just It's doable. Yeah. You just got to get in that mindset. That's really the bottom line, yeah. you know, so you just got to change the way you think about money and your lifestyle and your living. Good point. So, okay, well, that brings up to a close of this week's edition of Money MD with John and Steve. Tune in next Saturday from 9 to 10 a.m. to hear more prescriptions for your financial health. And do check us on our website, moneymd.net. Email us your questions at info at moneymd.net or give us a call at Richard Young Associates at 706-739-0725. Have a great weekend. Thanks for listening. Have a good one. Material on this program is intended for general information only and should not be taken as specific investment, tax, or legal advice. None of the information contained in this broadcast is intended by the host to be a solicitation for the purchase or sale of any security. Endorsed Local Provider is an endorsement of customer service only and does not reflect quality of investment decisions and is not connected to investment returns. Further information is available by contacting Richard Young Associates, a registered investment advisor. Securities sold through Independent Financial Group, LLC, member of FINRA and SIPC.